Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast. Today's guest, Kurt Euler, is awesome. Michael, would you agree? Yeah, he's um, got quite a resume, quite an experience, and a really, really likable guy for you know the type of things that he's done. Um, not that that's not synonymous. It's just, um, yeah, he was delightful. Well, he was delightful because he was charming and forthcoming. But to Michael's point, he is way smarter than both of us together. And the work that he's accomplished, the processes and systems he's developed to be so successful. uh, I could have listened to him talk about how to run a business better um, and how to build a brand better all day long. I love when we have guests who are so smart. Well, and, you know, what I like about it, too, is that it didn't get so technical with some of the things because he probably would have been talking about things that maybe we, we didn't process. I mean, because um, it's on a high level, but at the same time, it's philosophical. It's how he approaches the business, how he approaches management, how he approaches culture. And I think those are all really, really important things that everybody seems to be talking about right now, how to get a handle of it, how to manage it, how to you know employ those uh, those devices into what you're doing every day. Right. Well, and I think part of that comes from his background. You know, he talks about it, what it was like to be a college athlete, to leave college, to go to an even different, better go roll tide, better college. Um, I think he's he's accomplished a lot. And so it's not just his business acumen, uh, but his personal story as well. It's a fascinating listen. Uh, So stick around and meet Kurt Euler. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. You know, I, I feel like, and and Michael mentioned this um, before we went live and or went on, and so I want to go back to it because I don't think you fully appreciate how serious he is. We are so honored to have a guest of your caliber. The work that you've done, the accomplishments that you've made. I'm looking forward to uh, being in class for the next hour. That's what I feel like it's going to be. Uh, so maybe we just get started with, for the people who don't know you, uh, a little bit of kind of a background of who you are and and where you're coming from. All right. Um, so I tend to be on the B2B side. So selling to you know businesses that sell to other businesses. I do touch a good bit on the consumer side, but usually more product and technology. But I've always, I've always been in kind of, you know, fast growing, primarily technology companies. I'm on my second hyper growth company right now. And so I think, you know, many people are looking at how they grow a company 10, you know, 10, 10%, 20%, maybe even 50%. I'm at a company that didn't even exist like 17 years ago called EXP Realty that now is, you know, on two of the three ways you measure the, the largest residential real estate company in the United States. And uh, this is my number, my second one like that. And so I find that there's this uh, muscle memory you get from growing companies. And so I kind of live and breathe systems and operations. And so um, I spent 10 and a half years at a company that like literally the spatial data that was behind anything from MapQuest for, you know, for, for us back in the day, but Garmin's car navigation systems. And we think about Google Maps being everywhere but they're still number two compared to this company that's owned by a massive conglomerate right now. And so I would walk out of a meeting with Siemens VDO that made the navigation system for Lexus and walk into UPS Logistics and then walk into my innovation team that went back and the back of my shelf there was helping, you know, we taught, we taught Microsoft how to build video games a different way. And so it was almost like management consulting and seeing how people were using technology. That's awesome. I have some friends at EXP, uh, big fan of what y'all are doing. I've been able to, a few of them have attended some of my branding workshops, and uh, I think it's a great program. So you've done it twice now. That means you must know what you're doing. What to you are the steps to start putting a company into the growth phase? Where do you begin to look to make changes? Uh, documenting what's being done uh, to be able to hand stuff off. Uh, Even even if that the earliest stage companies, which is where I prefer not to actually help with too much, I'm a scaler, but even at the earliest stage solo entrepreneur, the best thing somebody can do is start documenting the things that they're doing and the processes that they need, that they do for each one of those. Because I find it one is there's an intentionality that comes from that. Hey, if you're a solo entrepreneur, or or maybe you have, you know you're a man or woman that runs a, a you know a, a five person electrical you know van company, um, to be able to start documenting what does your marketing look like and and, and what steps need to take place, it, it changes then where you decide to spend your time when you go oh. 
I keep missing this step or this isn't on my calendar. And that's why I'm skipping this. But when you start doing that or at bigger places, I'm always trying to work myself out of a job. I'm trying to teach my team. So do I have this documented enough or do I trust my team enough because I've hired smart people for them to be able to take off this process and something else? And, and But it needs to take place if people don't think that way already. It You need to implement it in your personal life because you, we have these things in our life, personal life that we can. And then it's funny how much then it just, it'll bleed over to your work life. My wife and I, we joke, we run all of our properties. We have a couple different houses we live in, but like we run the house, even the first house, we run it on Trello. Cause like there's a column for Aaron, for errands and buying because you buy different things at Costco than you get at Walmart, than you get at tractor supply company or, you know, the grocery store. And so when I show up to Costco or she shows up to Costco, what's on that list, something that me or my mother-in-law has put on there. Well, that's a systematic way of thinking that most entrepreneurs, no matter the size of their company, they don't think that way. And that's what differentiate a company that's really able to scale. So to that point, because I think processes are awesome. And what you just described, the Trello board method of grocery shopping makes my heart happy. Um, the creative uh, talent that I live with does not operate that way. So how do you teach people to think in a process-oriented way? I, I mean, some degree, it's almost like if you go into somebody uh, somebody's garage or workshop and, you know, you decide to start organizing things um, <laughs> and for them, like, you know, I, I I did that years ago for my dad and I just, I knew because of his mentality, he was much more of that creative approach. I, I was never going to be able to have things lined up for him. So he got a drawer for screwdrivers and a drawer for hammers. And so working with who those people are, but also explaining how that works. And so like, I actually find like say Trello in our personal lives, it's it whether work or personal, it actually makes the creative process so much better as long as you don't expect the creative person to get in there and keep everything organized. Like I'm an operations guru. I, I love organizing things. So, but like, and my wife does a lot of that, but like we have a column literally, well, for ideas when we just have something that comes out, but we have a list for stupid money. And it's, it's, it's things where we want to creatively think about, gosh, what if we bought this property? What if we did that? What if the kids, we were able to do this with the kids and, and I want that creative free flow, but I, the system apply allows a place for us to dump those thoughts, knowing we will come back and talk to it at some point. And the same thing applies then when I come into one of my content teams. I have a super large content team. We produce somewhere between 400,000 and 600,000 words of original content on a monthly basis. And so we we lit, we have a couple different ways that, uh, that, that people can dump their ideas into that so we can then come back. And it, it's a creative place. From there, then keyword research ticks off. After that, titles, you know, for, for pieces come off. But the initial thing is just, do you have an idea? Well, sometimes I'm very good at the rigid ideas where we have those systems. Other cases I'm driving and my creative uh, juices are flowing. And so I just have open a, an email that I end up sending to me or Maddie on the team that has 35 different topic ideas that I thought of and we know from a creative perspective, if you get one of those emails, you need to do something else with it afterward. But hey, if I'm thinking that way, I can't be in a Google Sheet or in Trello knocking out ideas because it would slow down my creative process. So I think you have to meet people where they are and then have processes that will pick up what to do next. When I think, you know, talking about creative, we talk about that a lot here. Um, people say, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not creative. I, I find you and Jackie kind of falls on your team on this are extremely creative in how you solve problems and how you approach uh, issues. Jackie's very on the fly, as I'm sure you are. You, you have answers. You have answers. You, you, you. It's at the top of your mind. You're probably exploding with things that are waiting to get out. My process is very different. It's right. very, uh, you know, it's more artistic based. Really, it's. I, I would. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it creative. It's it's artistic in in how I word or phrase things or put designs together. But as far as problem solving goes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on a you're on a different plane, you know, people like Jack and yourself and I guess leaders, CEOs, people that the way they approach problems, the way they find answers, the way they organize themselves to get to those answers, that's all extremely creative and as far as how you approach them, right? Yeah, I, but I, I, I'm, I mean, I am like you, depending on what the task is or what I'm needing to do. And so I, I'm a big believer in deep work. I, I, I don't. I, while I, while I have a clock back here for keeping times, this is not because I, I do not follow the Pomodoro technique. This is to keep my butt in the seat for at least so long, usually to get me into a flow state. And so um, that's literally where it's like I spent 
I mean, so I lead a large enterprise SEO team. So it's like, instead of trying to rank for 50 terms, I'm trying to rank for 5 million buyer-related terms. And so I did not, almost nothing on, on Friday and most of Monday a week ago, but just in deep flow state for creatives thinking through topics that then would kick off keyword research later. I needed to not be interrupted for that, but I also had to protect that kind of time as well. Um and, and for me, like I'm probably very different from a creative perspective than you. I'm, yes, there are things where I just I have a solution. I'm going to come out. And if you if you read my Berkman report, it's a huge way I think for communication, making sure people understand terminology to kind of commonly talk. I know from business perspective, I want to make a quick decision, but I also know that kind of exposes to me. The bigger the decision is, I'll come up with an idea right there. But actually, the more time I act, so I'll show up that way. But what you wouldn't know, Michael, is I actually want more time to sit and stare out the window and think through that and be creative and explore other ideas. But I won't show up that way. And so the best way that you could actually support me is to say, I know this is a big thing. You had an idea. Do you want to come back to this in like two or three days? And because I don't I won't show up like that. And a lot of a lot of operators want that time. But we're used to just speaking is coming out. And on the creative side, you need we need the help of somebody going, but do you actually want to go back and think about it? Um, or I'm creative in different ways. You may have the ability that I don't have. You give me a blank slate a lot of times, and I'm horrible at. You give me some seed creativity stuff, and then two days to go through stuff, and magic happens. And, but if you just said, hey, go start with this. Uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty good in Photoshop. I'm not bad at you know, an illustrator. But you give me the blank canvas, I can never do what probably you could do. You give me here seven ideas to start with, I can do great from there. But that initial thing blocks me. And I think that's part of working across teams is what do you need versus me for creativity and acknowledging our creativity approaches are going to be different. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. So when, you're, when your business partner throws out an idea in a meeting and you have to go finally figure it out, does that, does that ever happen? Jackie. It does. It does happen. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, I actually, I don't like EOS, the entrepreneur operating system for a lot of like, it's a little too rigid for me, but the con core concept is very good for a lot of times you do have somebody who is the mad scientist that has that. And then I tend to fall into the, I'm the operator and I'll go get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Now that makes and sense. To be clear, it's happened like one time. He makes it sound like I do it all the time. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, There'll be, we'll have like, you know, six weeks working on a project, a big assessment, we're presenting it. And she throws out this idea that she has and it totally, and the client will like, I love that. Now it's like, okay, now we have to go figure out how to make this work into right. what we've already been doing, which is fine. And usually it's not a bad idea, usually. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's okay. Now I got to go figure out what's in her head and make that work. And when you come back to, to the drawing board with her, it's like, I don't know. I just threw it out there. <laughs> okay yeah. good that works great i have no i mean i uh, i have no problem with doing that just i i necessarily i mean i've i've done that myself sometimes in front of a client um but but i prefer you know i try not to do that in front of the client or the big boss i on the on the other side because i tend to be in technology companies i i am fairly technical the and i so i sometimes will get or i usually will get pretty right like the level of effort for for coding stuff and the project work um i'm not going to be categorically wrong usually but i've seen so many founders that they'll go out and they'll promise things even at big companies 50 million dollars they'll tell the client oh we can do that and not having no idea what the real level of effort is behind the scenes and it's like no 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 great idea do not ever tell that client though what the what the technology you can do until you actually get a real kind of product experience for can can you do this what's the level of effort you thought it was three hours or 30 hours it's really three thousand hours of, of people work all right to be clear what you're talking about which i think is awesome yeah. is I gave a client one kind of idea to take something that the creative team had come up with that was awesome and brilliant. And I just extrapolated a little piece off of it. And the client did like it. And there may be that the client liked it better than Michael's idea. Hence the jealousy that you're hearing in his voice. Michael. I don't know if I call it jealousy, possible? but yeah. <laughs> did you, you kept the client though, right? Well, of course, oh, yeah. the client's thrilled. Then, the client then that's all that really matters. To some I'm brilliant. Thank you. My point exactly. Well, it's exactly. kind of what we've built everything on here is, you know, like I said, uh, we focus a lot on messaging, uh, the side of things and um, kind of getting in, real understanding audiences and, and, and those levels. And it, it works for us in the fact that we really try to combine the creative and the strategy together 
mm-hmm. when, when it comes to those things, not just the pretty picture, but why is it a pretty picture and, and yeah. is it going to connect and resonate those kind of things? Um, I, which leads me to, you know, you do, like I said, a lot of B2B work. What do you think the challenges right now are for, for businesses today um, that are in today's market? I mean, obviously it's, it's, constantly evolving and changing. We've been thrown so many things as far as technology and media and, you know, everything that's going on in the world, you know, I mean, can you summarize that or is it just, Hey, we're going to go with the flow and and move with the the changes, keep up. Yeah. Great question. There's, there's probably two main things that jump out to me. And and, and the first is, I mean, how people are selling and marketing. I mean, so many companies, they, they to your point about how you, you all approach the creative and branding side, most companies like are still marketing and selling tw- like they were 20 years ago and they're selling their features as opposed to telling, even on the B2B side, like people connect with people, they connect with brands and it's like, why would I ever go and sell like my product when I can go sell the superhero stories that my product enable my customers to do? That That's so much easier for selling and, and the growth is so much better, but most companies aren't doing that. And, and somewhat similar to that is, I it was actually early last week, I was on a call with a private equity group who literally put a couple of us together and they were like, look, our, we, the one thing we know about our portfolio companies, they had about 17 companies in their, uh, in the portfolio is that, I said, almost all of our chief marketing officers are categorically the wrong hire. Like that's where we're at. And we think the majority of our chief revenue officers are. Why? Well, because they, same thing, they, is similar. They hired CMOs that were, would have been really good CMOs maybe 20 years ago. And so we kind of talked about systematic thinking. Like I, I envy those of you that, that are really good on the creative side and think through all of that. And, but the, and, and that that's so needed. And um, I, I tend to like to outsource and bring in people, you know, shops that are really, really good at that. But the person that came out of Digitas or one of these big agencies, and, and they have 15 years of that, that is almost the worst, like, venture capital, private equity CMO, in my experience, because the creative side, as you all know, is so hard. But to be successful in marketing, it's how do I do marketing automation? How do I do things at scale? I would almost rather hire... Uh, a, a, a previous lawyer, applied mathematician, a software architect that came into marketing because they're going to think in a way modern marketing tools and modern branding to take a really good creative message, a really good, your customer as a superhero and go and sell that. And so I had two meetings with that private equity group, just giving them some advice. And so they came back and we can talk to them next week. But the they came back, the, the kind of the thought that they had was, 15 of 15 of maybe the 17 CMOs we have are the wrong people. What do we do? And so that was the topic we're going to talk about next. And I just replied back, I'm going to tell you to fire all of them and rehire some, and, and hire new. Um, I don't know if you still want to talk, but that's going to be their entire like 45 minute conversation. They said, we'll have different questions for you. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> now, those people have no idea on the other side. All of the people have wonderful pedigrees and maybe great running large agencies or, you know, being a, a GM and, a, you know, for some large, but but they're not going to be good for some, uh, for a $100 million, $200 million B2B, you know, SaaS company. Right. Um, a little off the topic, but I think equally as important. Kurt, who do you think is the greatest football coach of all time and why is it Nick Saban? <laughs> Well, I do have a master's from Alabama, so that's, I know. that's part Roll of it. Tide. Um, I mean, it's a, it's definitely Nick Saban. So. Of course, it is. Um, if for nothing else, and then like he he gets a lot of flack for different things, but um, I was invited to a private suite from a uh, from an alumni, and gosh, this is probably like this might have even. I mean, this was years ago. I mean, Nick had been there for a little while, and um, and the gentleman pops you as he goes, watch Nick, and I was like, why is there coming out? And he was like, nobody will pass the plane of him coming out before his hand moves. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so sure enough, they're coming out of that kind of tunnel and you see Nick's fingers kind of move and, th- and then players rush by. And I was like, what was that? And he was like, he's trying to teach them to be good people in life. And his cardinal rule, well, one of his cardinal rules was if anybody pl- pass, uh, even enters the plane of him before he gives motion, they will not play in that game no matter who they are. And I was like, no. And he was like, we can ask him afterwards. Um, but he was like, that's one. And I was like, that's a level of teaching people. Like, imagine being able to to say, I would lose. I knew I, I might know I would lose the game right now because I'm trying to teach the people who they need to be in 10 years. 
No, it's about building men, not just players. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, it has been so amazing to watch what he's accomplished. And I, I hear it all the time from people. They're like, oh, you know, he's he's got cheating in his program. You know, he's buying players. This is before NIL. And I was like, you know what? I don't think so. Only because of the number of coaches that come through there and head on to other places to right. become his opponents. They would have well ratted him out by now if there was a hint of cheating, as opposed to all the other programs that have been caught. Yeah, I think a lot of it, like, even if you look at business, like, you know, we look back at like, you know, um, like good to great or anything from a book perspective. And it's like most of the companies in that book tanked very quickly afterwards kind of thing. And so it's very it's I mean, it's still difficult to find success. But I think where you find where you see re, uh, real leadership is what where to your point, where what do those people do later? What, what happens in Nick's coaches? What happens in his people? Not just in football, but when they become like, what, where are they at in the business world afterwards? It's like, hey, there, there's been a lot of like people that have wrote really good books, like uh, like good to great. And it's like, well, I wouldn't actually want to, like, I wouldn't want the success record of some of those. You go look at a book like Cheryl Backhelder's uh, Dare to Serve, and you you follow the people she talks about or who she's worked with before, and they've gone on now over the last 10 or 15 years to do the, to do the same thing. They turned around a bankrupting company at Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, and they've now done that at 20 different companies. And it's a testament to who she was and who she is with the people that she leads. So, Right. No, absolutely. But I knew you were a Bama grad. And so uh, any chance that I get to talk about the greatness of Alabama being rooted here in South Louisiana, it makes me happy. Well, I, I joke. I get thank you. I, I get joke. I have the best ridiculing rights in any college football, though. I, I'm a I'm a I'm a Vanderbilt uh, varsity athlete. So Division one athlete. But then I went to Alabama and I'm an Alabama fan. Well, if Vanderbilt ever wins in football, nobody. Like I can call and ridicule anybody, but when they lose, nobody ever like calls me up and razzes me and because they know he's know I, I have Alabama on the backside. Correct. Yeah, I read that well, about um, your website as well. Um, we have a son that just graduated, um, got his master's at uh, Millsaps College in Mississippi. Yeah. And uh, he was a student athlete there. He played baseball. And um, he's currently, he just moved to Nashville and he's looking for work and starting out his career. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious as a, how did that play into your world as you got out of college and you moved on that experiences as being an athlete and and how did that affect you in your career yeah great question i mean i only became an athlete because i i had this work ethic instilled in me and i knew what it took to kind of succeed but there were two things that came out of being a college athlete um neither was necessarily in school one was in schools so i gave i gave my coach paul uh, uh my coach paul arsenal i gave him like a little less than two weeks notice and quit because i left vanderbilt and so I had a dad who was like, I actually went and started the company and um, my dad was going through health issues. And I, I went to coach Arsenal and I said, basically, I'm done. And he let me, he didn't talk me out of it. He didn't tell me what, what I was doing was a bad decision. I was like 20 hours away from graduating. Um, but he, he let me fail. And, and, and that was a big thing where looking back at it, like you have to do that in a lot of ways. And I mean, I was not a great college athlete, but I mean- I was still there, but then years later, I ended up working for a, a gentleman named John McLeod, who was the uh, who was a Harvard uh, Harvard quarterback. And so we're playing flag football at, at, uh, for, with our our company, and we're sitting around having beers afterwards in Chicago. And I got a little cocky and asked John because student athlete, and I went, "Hey, John, like, like what? Did, like, tell me about like work where it's like you like Harvard. It's not Alabama. It's not LSU or somewhere. I'm like, but so you walked into a stadium." And 5,000, 15,000 people cheered for you. What has ever been like, what, what's made you feel like that again? And John was wonderfully successful. And I mean, he wasn't too many beers in, but he became sober very quickly. And he became like my papa. And I was probably like 25 years old. And he basically told me, he said, look, you will never get that feeling again, anything in your life. And if you seek it, you're going to destroy everything you have and just accept no, you're not going to ever have like, not like in cross country, you never 5,000 people cheer for you, but he's like, he's like, you're never going to have like 15, 20 people just stand up and cheer for you. Like when you were an athlete and I, it, it shocked me because that was not what you expect to hear, but that, that actually transformed a huge bit of what I was seeking at work at the time, which was just accolades from work that was never going to get filled. I think it's great. And I think you learned, I mean, you know, I'm like I said, I'm just reading through your website and, I love everything about 
your, your journey, um, talking about family of grinders, early hacker and hustler and, and all these things. And, and we really, we have four kids that were all, uh, one post college and three in college now. And, and we hope that we have set them up in the same way, because I think we're a bit of grinders. We kind of started an agency from nothing and figured out how we did it. And, and we're not, you know, giant successful or anything like that, but we've managed to survive these years and, and do a lot of good for a lot of companies. And, it's because of that, of the ability to overcome obstacles and work it out. And I think, you know, being an athlete and again, our son was at a D3 school, wasn't a big college. And I mean, we went to baseball games there and there was like 50 people there versus a thousand. Wait, wait a second. There's such a small percentage of people that become an, a college athlete in any division. That's still a fraction of a fraction of a percent of high school athletes. So that's right. a thing <laughs> yeah and 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 again i'm so glad he did it because i think it taught him obviously baseball is about failure and, right. and and overcoming obstacles but it was the fact that he he took that on and and the experiences that he brought that continual grind and hopefully that leads into his next phase of life you know that he is able to go and and figure things out based on the obstacles that are going to come at him because they will come at him we all know that life's hard you know right well i i agree with everything you said and i'll just you know you're not done yet. And I only say that of like, you know, I have almost no parental advice because I have a four-year-old and a 20-month-old. So like, I, I'm y'all <laughs> so much more advanced. But so I went through like a, a, a three-year kind of early morning thing with a pastor here in Atlanta named Crawford Loritz. And I remember one morning somebody asked him, so his kids was just out of college and it's like, hey, Crawford, like kind of how do you knew, know when you're, you've been a good parent? And uh, he was expecting like the attaboy, like, hey, my kid's, you know, getting going to get get married and all. And Crawford just like, I don't I have no idea what his topic was for the day. He went side rail for the next 15 minutes and basically said, your kid's like 22. If you even think you're a good parent, you're probably not. And he was like, Crawford's like, two of my sons are pastors. And he was like, they're in their forties. I'm just now beginning to think I might be a good parent. <laughs> and he was like, it changes so much. Your thing. And you're right. Everything about leading up to it. But I think so often, like, it's like, yeah, it's like what happens from that point on. Um, and so I kind of joke, I, uh, I, I stumbled into success. I, I was taught as a grinder, but I was also raised by wolves. I feel like I was left to go find my own food basically uh, or figuratively. And so like they taught me how to work, but it was like, I didn't even have like, like how I got to be a college athlete. Like it was just dumb luck almost. <laughs> but it's impressive. It's impressive. You not only were a college athlete, but also managed to have the balance of a fraternity. Um, uh, you'd be a good student, left school, went back, got your degree, got grad school. I mean, I, I think it's an impressive educational journey. So, you know, for the full recognition of it. Um, I want to switch gears again and go back to EXP. Um, there's a number of EXP agents here in our area that I mentioned earlier have attended some of my uh, branding workshops and seminars or they're members of my um, my branding online community. And they're cut from a different cloth. And I, I've been around real estate. I worked at a real estate office when I was in high school. So I've been around real estate for a long time, family and real estate. And so... How does that work? Do you um, or, or does EXP have a very strict um, recruitment process? So is it the people or is it the process? Do you get them different or do you turn them different? How does it go? Well, EXP, I mean, internal, it's almost a negative word to say recruit. EXP does not recruit. Sure. They attract. And I think because of that, they, they, they're, they're outselling it's a, it is a different business model, but it attracts people that are more CEO focused themselves. I think what even a lot of real estate agents don't realize, but I mean, the public definitely doesn't realize, I'm sure you do, because you, you mentioned so many agents that you're around, is that like every, almost every agent in the United States is a 1099 contractor. And so whether they're with EXP or Keller or Remax, it's like that's the brand or shingle they're at, but it's my business if I'm the if I'm the agent. And most most agents I find don't talk don't approach it that way. Even if it's a side hustle for them, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like oh you're a school teacher or an accountant and you're you also you know sell five homes or twelve homes on the side. They they don't approach it as a business. And so I think with an attraction model, you tend to get people that are looking for hey, I want to grow my business. I'm thinking about myself. And it's more of where do I apply that at? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, outside of anything with eXp, I do a fair bit of speaking in real estate even before I came uh, to eXp. And I was just dumbfounded by hearing the things like the average agent changes brokerages every five years. 
And so from a branding perspective or a marketing perspective, like I'd go in and I'd go talk to some MLS or association, bring me in to speak. And I'd kind of ask people like, you know, how many people have, you know, changed brokerages, you know, once, twice, three times. How many times did you, uh, how many times did you feel like it started over your business? And almost everybody, a hundred percent, it felt like they started over because they didn't treat it as their business. It was brand whoever I was with, as opposed to brand Jackie, brand Michael. And so I think there's just an attraction that happens when, when, you know, when you are that type of person, other agents gravitate towards you. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and so you do attract different um, because you said it, it's the people who see themselves as a business and want to invest in their business. Um, I think that some of the things EXP does, I think maybe a lot of people, maybe even Michael doesn't realize, maybe talk a little bit to the model and, and stock and the commissions and how different EXP really is. I mean, I, I'm actually def- not the expert there. I mean, I, I run so much of our technology. I, I run exprealty.com. Um, I do a lot of operations, the agent age referrals, but the business model is different. My my very poor understanding is like there's a franchise model in so many organizations. And what I just, one of the things I hear is like EXP operates as really one team. Like my team actually built an internal agent to agent referral tool to make it super easy to to refer business across uh, across to other EXP agents. It took even in-house, it would take 45 minutes before and it takes them like 45 seconds now to do to do one of those referrals. But but at other places, they're like, oh, not only is this is it better at EXP doing this, the model uh, like our tools just make the model work better because you're not trying to figure out, hey, there's some cross border and hey, which office are you in versus me? It's just, oh, you're in Louisiana and I have a client moving there and I know you and you can close deals or you can help my client. And, and that's why like our tools tend to work very well with things like that. Right. Um, and so I, I tend to hear that one team approach so much different, but there are stock benefits and other things that benefit as well. Um, but I mean, that's not one of the things that I'm the expert on. So, well, I'm, I'm curious, I don't know how deep your relationship or how far it goes back with you or, or whatnot, but did they come to you with a problem or did you assess them and figure out where a solution was where they didn't know a problem existed? I got acquired in. So I uh, I actually uh, had a friend who had sold off another company in real estate technology and that sent me a message that was basically, hey, I heard you talk to your wife into being okay with you taking 18 months off. That sounds difficult. I just sold TourBuzz. Can, can we have coffee? And he told me about this other company he had started, which is called Showcase IDX. So companies use it to build uh, agent websites. And what I found out very quickly was the technology was superior to anything else out there, but they just couldn't sell. And so five days later on Christmas Eve that year, I, I ended up joining that company. And EXP World Holdings that owns EXP Realty ended up acquiring that, uh, acquiring us. We sold it to them, and uh, which then we built, we used that as the basis for building everything internal. But I just crossed my three-year mark with EXP. I normally wouldn't necessarily have stayed after like an acquisition. I, I tend to be a scaler, but they had grown so much in my interactions with them. One, uh, how they approach business, this hyper growth mentality and servant leadership is who they are. But uh, from a problem perspective, what they were trying to do are things that I can solve. Enterprise SEO is immaculately hard. I, I happen to be really good at it. I've done that in many different industries before and um, you know, consulted with some big, big brands on that. And so, hey, you want to go after Zillow? I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Um, a content machine that is a half million words of original content, that's a that's a different beast than the way most, most marketers think. And so it's like, because of the problems that they said they were wanting to have, I'm able, like, that's one of the areas I can help. And then we've and brought in a bunch of people to the team that um that things like I mentioned the agent to agent referral tool intend to go and build that. Agents told us just because we like talking with agents, just like on the creative brand side, how do you build a good thing? You go find out what people's problems are and you talk to them, not what the company's wanting to do. And um we have people who deep real estate experience are like, well, I can build that. I was like, well, if you can build it, I can train them how to use it. So which is awesome. Um, yeah. I think that when we're talking about it, you know, in the companies that you've been in and the, and the clients that we've worked with and even the company that we've built, it all comes down to truly understanding what you need to accomplish. And I think so many people miss right. that. Maybe it just feels too obvious or um, they get distracted. And it, it seems as though, and correct me if you've had a different experience, but it seems as though they start assuming they know the answer to the question. 
and solving for this thing over here when actually the biggest problem is over here and it's massive, but it's almost too big and they don't see it. And so um, they limit themselves. And it sounds like what you've been able to do is go to these companies and open the opportunities instead of limiting. Yes. And and some of that's also just an approach. I mean, I, I, I do believe to your point, like there's, there's, everybody has a ton of hidden assumptions. And so part of my job is to ask that, what problem are you solving and what's really the problem and, 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 and go do research to figure that out in anything. We all have hidden assumptions. And so it's being aware of that. But I also like, I've trained my team as well. This always gets weird when I talk about it, but it's like every day, sometimes it's only 30 seconds, but I ask myself, what am, what are the three things I'm fundamentally wrong about in my business? And I usually ask myself the same thing in my personal life, my wife too, um, and, and kids. Cause I, if you look back at about it, like how many times have, have you, you know, you realize that something you've been doing at the agency for the last two years was not only a little wrong, was absolutely the wrong thing to do, but you didn't do it knowing it was the wrong thing. And so I've, I've come to that conclusion so many times where I realize I have to be humble enough to say, I might not, I like, there's gotta be at least three things wrong in my business right now. And I don't know what they are. And the only way that I know to solve that is to have other people thinking about it and approaching myself and realize being wrong and being right feels exactly the same way until you realize you're Wiley Coyote off the cliff, the roadrunner's back there, and you're wrong. And and, and you and, and you're gonna drop to the ground. Well, I'd much rather figure that out before I go off the cliff. And so use the guardrail to give me the heads up that I'm about to go off the cliff and 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 you know, okay, maybe this is wrong. And so that I think that's also how you approach the and find those assumptions and go, we're solving the wrong problem. Being wrong and being right feels the same until you're halfway off the cliff becomes not just, I think, the tagline for this whole podcast, but maybe the life lesson I take with me for all my days to come, because I think you hit that nail on the head so squarely and went straight through the board. Yeah. I mean, there are times, I mean, we can all be honest. There are times where it's like, I know this is a stupid thing. I'm going to do it anyways. I might as well hold up the sign that says, Hey, watch this. But, <laughs> but, 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 but most of the time we don't make a decision knowing it's wrong. We, it, we think it's right. And then only later do we uncover that was the bad thing. Oh, I, I don't have a connection with my son or daughter or my wife because I've been choosing to do this and prioritize things differently. I built this product. I actually realized it first with an angel investment check. I wrote a pretty decent six-figure check to a company that at a couple of years, like two and a half years later, I realized if I looked back, there were all the signs that that was a stupid check. I should have wrote it to a charity or a church as opposed to, but but I, I got caught up in other re- things that I thought it was the right decision. And I'm like, well, that money's gone. Well, how that do you hurts. know, though, when you get to the point of, because there is a jumping off point too of trust, right? Where you may not know the answers, but you just have a, either, you've done the research, but you have that gut feeling that it's right or wrong. You know, like there, there is a point of, of trust with that, right? With you, If you're dealing with an agency, if you're dealing with a business, if you're dealing with technology, whatever it may be, like, I believe this is going to, where you have to have that confidence in it, right? Yeah, I, I view that as controlled risk. So I'm certified alligator handler. Anything in Louisiana, you can preach it. Anything up to about eight and a half foot, I can handle myself. Um, anything more than that, I, I need Jackie and uh, you, you to jump in the pool and or the river and help me out with it. That that's controlled risk because I know my skills. I've been trained in doing some of those things. And so, uh, from a from a work perspective, I find too many people make decisions where yes, there is a point of trust. There is a point where I have to invest to get through this next stage. That's different than. Um, should I have known earlier? I was at a company we ended up selling to Oracle. We thought, and so it was social media management, like literally schedule the one of the initial two companies scheduling everything for social media companies. And we thought we needed to go create satellite offices where all of our local uh, big brands were that we worked with. Well, it was only about, a, it was probably about six months into that before we we knew certainly that that was the wrong decision. And we had to go back, the board made, we made the decision and we knew we were going to have to go let, uh, go let 25 to 30 people go. Well, as we the CEO and I sat down and we replayed what we think, we had so many hidden assumptions, uh, Jackie, to your point before, we should have known that it was the wrong thing to do beforehand. But but just, well, this is what you do when you have a SaaS-based company and MarTech and you get to the side, our customers directly told us they didn't care. And so that was one of the places it wasn't controlled risk. That was us making a decision that we just didn't come back and examine because this is just what you do. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Um, you know, Kurt, a little off the subject, but I um I think it bears asking while you're um, being publicly recorded, therefore on the spot. Um, we've been planning. So in a couple of weeks, I'm getting ready to do this Women's Summit at Sea. And it is a um, collection of uh, women who are, you know, in leadership roles, working on their uh, branding, their personal development, professional development. But instead of doing a conference at our uh, center here in Lafayette, we're getting on a Royal Caribbean boat because not. Uh, so we're doing one next year. And um, I've talked to a couple of the local brokers that I'm friends with about doing it real estate based. So um, if we align our calendars, might you be interested in doing a session uh, for these realtors? Because it might be fun and it's on a boat. <laughs> I'd be open to that. I'd be open right. to that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, then uh, I'll reach out back to you with some information. And we haven't even picked the date yet. But um, I just think anytime I can merge two fun things of vacation and learning, I mean, that's a win win. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I mean, I'm, I'm still I'm at, at EXP is that flexibility. I'm not sure there's a number that would force me to go into an office, uh, like any amount of time. I want to have an office where I want to go into it for certain reasons. But my wife and I have a mountain property. And so when we want to go work up there and kids are in school, we, we go up there. And so being able to kind of do that and produce anywhere, like that's that that's to your point, like, you know, you look for synergies where things overlap. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw on your website too, you have a section that says intentional rest. I'm a strong believer in taking the time to recover. More often than not, my rest is active. And if I have my preference, strenuous. So, you know, I don't think everybody maybe would want to go climb a mountain or wrestle alligators, but the importance of taking that time to kind of recharge. I think, you know, Jack and I both have have really made an effort, I think, this past year to 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 take the time to do those things because we've been grinding out our agency for the past, you know, 20 years and mm -hmm. haven't taken that time and our kids are a little older. So, but it's like, I wish we would have done it sooner. Cause I think it is important. You know, can you talk a little right. bit about that? Yeah. Well, I, the key for me there is it's intentional rest and, and, and knowing both what rest looks like for you versus what it looks like for your partner or spouse as well. So like my wife, from a rest perspective, like, she needs she needs peace and to be like not doing anything like we don't like we're not beach people at all but like she wants to be at a mountain property and not have anything to do like there's there's like ideally not even necessarily you know like making lunch for the kids i'll step in for that every once in a while if i examine i may want just like calm time so my way like i have to make sure i can i can provide a, a almost peaceful calm environment for her to rest. how she does that for me is i yeah i like I intentionally plan and, and I also know my wife's schedule. She needs a half a day to a full day once a week. Like that's, that's what she's decided that, that like keeps her from an intentional rest perspective. I don't necessarily need to rest that frequently. I like to do it once a week, but my rest, I like hiking with the kids. It can be, doesn't have to be strenuous, but if you give me six to 12 hours in almost like Kandahar heat in, 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 in George, North Georgia. And I say that cause I'll be in coveralls in August or September. The heat doesn't bother me cutting on trees and pulling out vines on our mountain property and, you know, drinking through a gallon and a half of water to the mountain, that's actually much more restful for me than just going and sitting in a hammock. At very quickly, like 30 minutes in a sitting in a hammock most day, like I'm fidgety. It's too much. Like, like that's not, that's the exact opposite of rest for me. And so we're just wired differently, but we're aware of that. And so we also budget that into our time. And we literally, we budget our, our time and our skills the way that most people budget like finances. And so, Hey, is it best for me to go and dig ditches helping a church or a nonprofit or ministry? Eh, usually no. Um, Cause I can go donate my time doing something and help that same organization in a different way. So we do the same thing with our, with our time as well and try to be intentional. We don't always get it right. But. I wish we could bank time. Like we do the money in our budget. You can't bank it, but if you're playing for it ahead of time, it works a lot better. But it, it, okay. it, it's so hard, I find, when you, when you run your own company. I've done it on the other way where, like, a lot of times I will acquire a company in. And the first – it always shocks founders when I do this. So it's like we uh, – at this company we sold, Oracle, we acquired uh, uh, these two founders and their company called Games That Give. And so the first meeting that, like, now they're officially ours, all the paper's done, money's been transferred, and they're expecting, like – give me my sales numbers to go after and what to go build. And I was like, here's the checklist of what I need back from you before we meet next. And it was like, I don't care what your times are, but I need you to plan 
I need you to come back to me and on the calendar, tell me when you're going to take off. Both of them were married. When you're going to take off with your kid, uh, with your fa- wife and your kids over the next 12 months, do you want to have a every two week or every four week date night with your kids? You figure out whatever your personal time is and block it in your calendar. I don't care to, to want to know what you're doing. And then we'll have a meeting about what you're going to do work-wise. And we had a bunch of go back and forth because they didn't understand the questions and they thought I was trying to get in their personal lives. I'm like, I'm not. We're going to build exciting big things and you're going to be so excited coming to work and what what we're trying to accomplish if you don't protect your personal side our work is going to destroy your family life so if that's important before i can have a conversation with you about what i want us to do over the next 12 to 24 months you need to block out things and i'll protect that as well and they like I literally had like two follow-up meetings individually with them because they didn't understand and or one was really concerned I was getting in his life. I'm like, I don't care what's important to you and your wife. I just want you to look 12 months out and block your calendar. And he was like, but numbers, we'll get to numbers, figure out that. And so when it's your numbers, like you can do that yourself. And so my wife and I try to do that, but we don't always get it right either. And more often now when we're doing a look back, we go, we haven't got it right over the last three months. What do we need to do today to look ahead? Right. Yeah, we've gone to um, a a four-day work week here at the agency in the past maybe four months or so, and um, which has been harder for me to kind of wrap my head around than Jackie. She was the one that really pushed for it. But um, we had a like a conference, a team meeting recently, um, and we were talking through it. And we have a uh, we have a personal like a business coach that comes in and kind of works with us and allows us to communicate and whatnot. And it's been really successful. But she asked everybody how it was going, and to hear their feedback on it, it really changed my perspective because I didn't realize how fundamental it was. I mean, we had people talking about their marriage was better because of it, um, because yeah. they had that extra day. They're they're I mean having that that time you know away from the, their kids or their business or whatever, and it was or even just time to catch up. It was it was really life changing for a lot of them, and I didn't realize how important it was, other than just having an extra day off, you know. Yeah, I I find whether it's going to a true four day work week or taking a day where like meetings aren't allowed or anything, or and or just structuring things as well so that like hey, on it like our thirty ish maybe thirty five person team right now, like we have only like kind of two set all team meetings like throughout the week, and a couple of su- subgroups have meetings, but. But for the most part, it's all output focused. And so one, like if somebody wants to take off, like I'll go look at one of our product managers, sometimes on his calendar, he has booked because he wants to go pick up his daughter from school from, you know, two to three or three to four. Well, I never noticed that whatsoever, but he, they have that flexibility because what we're, we've shit, we so much have shifted to caring about what's output versus just where ours are. And I find that so much better whether it's a four day work week or just say, Hey, we're having no meetings today. But it also unlocks tapping talent that businesses can't have in other ways. Right. Um, people that work on teams that have a special needs child where things come up and you can never convince them to go in an uh, office or have to show up five days a week during this time. Um, my wife and I have been in this situation as well. I have a couple of good friends that are in elder care now. Same type of thing. And so when you shift to four-day work week, it allows for things like that to happen personal-wise, which one helps the business, but also changes changes families' lives entirely. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know to hear them talk, and to Michael's point, it's probably top three um, most important conversations we've ever had at this company in our twenty four yeah. years. Um, to hear them say, "This has saved my marriage. Yeah. This has made me a better parent. This has um, protected my mental health." I thought, yeah. "Wow, I mean, I just did it because." It seemed like something we could do. And, you know, I wanted it. I'd been blocking Michael out on the calendar for years and he kept coming to work anyway. Um, (laughs) And so I thought, okay, well, this is the way to make sure he takes the time off is everybody takes the time off. And um, I think it's been transformative for the whole company. Yeah, I I, I can so see that. And it's good to hear. I mean, when I look back, the flexibility, whatever, whether it's 40 work weeks or some of the things I talked about, I look back and it's like, at the true like standout top performers that have worked for me on some team around the world. And it's like, God, if I kind of go like, we're like the top 10, like eight of them were in situations, like truly stand out from anybody else. Like I, and I've had thousands of people work for me. Eight of those were in situations where they needed, like they only could have worked at a company that cared about output 
right. not about hours or specific day, days in offices. And I'm like, those are people then like that were categorical. They were inflection points on my teams. And if you didn't have a four day work week, if you didn't care about outputs for other things, like there's no way one, one, either one, they wouldn't have worked for me or it would have ruined something in their family life. No, 100%. Um, I am shocked to realize we've been talking for an hour. Kurt, you have been so forthcoming and so generous with your time and your knowledge and your wisdom and your experience. I love it. Um, if the people want to follow you and stay a part of your world and learn more from you, where do they go? They go to my personal website, kurtuhler.com, U-H-L-I-R.com. Uh, ton of free information there. I've turned down two book offers just because I'd rather kind of get information out there for free and book offers tend to uh, tie your hands much more. Fair enough. And we did not take that same route when it was offered to us. We jumped all over it and wrote a book and, and have loved having it and selling it. Uh, but I applaud you for taking the high road. That's awesome. There will probably be one before long. I mean, it was kind of a fun process. We've actually written a second one um, that any minute now, Michael's going to finish editing, which he's been editing for two years now, and then uh, we'll get that published. Awesome. Right, Mike? Any minute? Yeah, we did one, and it was basically uh, everything that we put in the book was stuff we've been talking about for years. Jackie's very forthcoming. Um, she, uh, much to my chagrin, she likes to share way too much. Um, she's the big sharer, but uh, but it's been good, you know, giving people information. And really, wow. the book is basically our branding process. If anybody ever wants to go copy it, they can. They, I mean, it's, 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 it's a little harder to implement, but... You have to have a lot of things, but we talk about it very openly. And the second book was, it was called He Says, She Said um, Branding. And the next, next one book. is about our, our kids, which our kids hate. It's called He Says, She Said Babies. And it's the story of us raising four kids like oh, that are all a year apart um, at, while running an agency. And it's kind of chaotic and crazy. And it's about all the mistakes we made and how to, it's not a, it's not a um, learning book. You don't want to read it to figure out how to raise kids. You want to learn what not to do by reading it. And, um, but they all managed to survive. So because we're so, so against it, they're still against it. So we had to code everybody. They all have code names in, in the book <laughs> to hide their identities, you know, anyway, this should be interesting when it comes out. Yeah, I, I think that's a, the best kind of learn, actually learning books is like too many people write a book, like follow this path. It's successful. Like I, I, I can't tell you how to necessarily have a successful marriage, but I can give you advice about how to bomb one because yes. I've done that before and things. And so, um, you know, there's there's suggestions that I have, but I can tell you much more. Don't do this. And so I like that. Yeah. No, uh, one of our kids, the second one who's about to graduate in chemical engineering, has threatened to sue us for her name, image and likeness <laughs> um, if we reference her by name. And I was like, here's the number of some attorneys. Let me know how that works out for you. So we're putting it out there just to spite her. That's funny. Which we just refer to her as number two, uh, which is both accurate in terms of her birth order and the kind of trouble she has given us over her 22 years on life on Earth. <laughs> She is a number two all the way. She's such a shithead. She's surprisingly uh, okay. successful, you know. But, yes, yeah. yes. Shockingly brilliant in, in chemical engineering, something we don't understand, uh, but she's not in other ways. Okay, Kurt, thank you for your time. For everybody listening, go follow Kurt on his website and uh, come back and catch us for the next episode. This has been Razor Branding Podcast. Or the He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast. It's just a lot of words.